Okay, so we're uh, we're moving along here in in our study. If you're visiting with us, we're we are uh, we're going through the book of Ephesians. I'm actually going to believe it or not try to cover three three entire verses today. Uh, we'll see if that happens, but uh, but let's just read the verses and then and then we'll try to go into them in, in some detail. Starting in verse, uh, we're in Ephesians one uh, four through six is what I'm going to try to do. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved." That's the scripture we're going to try to deal with this morning. You know, there's a lot there, and we really could—I really could uh, slow it down and just take it. We, you know, I just said—I noticed the pace we were going at, and said we're going to have to go a little faster than that, or we seriously never will finish Ephesians. So uh, I'm going to try to cover a lot here. I, but uh, first of all, just remember that this verse falls immediately on the heels of what Paul was telling the church in verse 3, that God had given them every spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. So he tells them that that there's this finished, accomplished reality that is now finished in Christ. The blessings, and we went back and looked at those blessings as they were promised specifically to Abraham. The, The blessings promised to Abraham, to the fathers, are now ours in the heavens in Christ. In the heavens where you have been raised up, seated with Christ now. Not, not just a future uh, place, uh, a geographical location, but a realm of life in Christ in which you live right now if you are born of His Spirit. Anyway, in verse 4, he, he sort of, what he kind of does here is he rewinds a little bit to be, and begins to describe that this isn't just some random act of kindness that God decided one day to perform with us, these raising us up, seating us, seating us with Christ, giving us all the blessings promised to Abraham in the heavens in Christ. That's not, it, it, was, it was something that God foreknew. It was something God predestined. It was a purpose that He, it was the very purpose for which He created the world. It's not just like a, a spontaneous Valentine's present or something. Hey, I got an idea. Let me just give them all the blessings I promised Abraham. That's not, no, it was the culmination of everything that God had in his heart before there was even a planet called Earth. It was God's ultimate intention before he even made anything. If you, if you, can, uh, if you can just realize that. His plan was predestined. His purpose was chosen before he even created the Earth. And it was his good pleasure. In other words, it was, it made him, you could say it made him exceedingly glad to establish and execute this plan. This wasn't a plan B. Uh, plan B, because you know the Garden of Eden uh, thing didn't didn't work out as God was hoping it would. This was Plan A. This was the only plan that God ever made in regard to human beings. This plan was not a reaction to man's shortcomings. This plan was established with the full knowledge of all of man's deficiencies and defections. That's why the book of Revelation speaks of Jesus as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the, of the world. Well, that's, that was part of the plan from the beginning. God's plan has never been, nor could it ever be, 
based upon the faithfulness or cooperation of human beings. God's plan has forever been solidified and sure based upon the faithfulness of His only begotten Son. That's a fact. So He doesn't alter or adjust His ideas contingent upon our response. He plans salvation. The Son accomplishes salvation. The Spirit reveals salvation. And it's there for whoever is interested in it. But God knew the beginning from the end. And that's what this verse begins to talk about. The end, in His mind, was worth the beginning. The second was worth the first. The end would be a people accepted in the Beloved, accepted in His Son, the Son of His love, living as a praise, that is a tribute uh, to His glory and grace. The, the entire plan was also born out of and, and is in fact the expression of His love for you. His love. That's what love is. This plan is, is really, and that's really what's going on here, this plan is the expression of God's love for you. We're going to get into that shortly. We're going to get into talking about God's love um, it's mentioned twice in these first uh, in, the, in these three verses. But before we get into that, I want to I want to try to deal briefly with these words chosen and predestined. I am uh, quite aware uh, of the raging debate in the body of Christ that's gone on for centuries about the meaning uh, of these words. What are these refer- words referring to? My personal opinion. Uh, however, is that that debate had its beginnings because of a very man-centered, human-focused, self-inflamed blindness and fear that exists when when, when a person misses the reality of the cross and therefore has God choosing individual Adamites rather than choosing His one and only begotten Son. It's my opinion. And I'll explain what I mean. I want to make clear that the question of God's choosing here has nothing to do with individual people. The question of His choosing, both here and in Romans 8 and 9, is the choosing of the one and therefore the choosing of all who will come to live in and by that one and the rejecting of another one, Adam, and all who are found in that one. That is the choosing and that is the rejecting. God does not select between Adamites. There's nothing to select. They're all the same. Can you hear that? What are you, what are you going to use as your criteria when it comes to the natural man, when it comes to the flesh? God says Himself that in the flesh dwells no good thing. The flesh profits nothing. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. God says in Romans 3.10-12, According as it has been written, there is not one righteous, no, not even one. There is not one with understanding. There is not one that seeks after God. All turn away. All have become together worthless. Not one is doing good. Not so much as one. How are you going to choose which one then you're going to save and which one you're going to damn based on what we all are by nature. What would God use as His criterion for selecting somebody of that kind? 
There is, however, a chosen Son. There is, however, the Son of His love. There is, however, the one that He looks down at the baptism and says, There is My beloved Son, the chosen one. There's that one. And if we by grace, through faith, come to live in that Son, we are the chosen of God being found in Him. We become the elect by sharing the life of God's elect. And our predestined purpose, which is talked about in Romans 8, is to be conformed to the image of that Son. The only thing mentioned in this verse with reference to the word predestination is the Son in which we would live and the plan to have a people adopted in that Son. You can go back and read it 50 times and you're not going to see anything else with that. He chose us in Him. That's the place of His choosing. He predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to Himself. That's the plan. Predestined. Here you have the where and the what of the predestination and nothing of the who. The who is the whosoever will come. Show me that in Scripture. Okay, I happen to have written down about 15, maybe 20. Matthew 7:24. Therefore, whoever hears the sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. Matthew 12:50. For whoever shall do the will of my Father in heaven, the same is my brother, sister, and mother. Matthew 16:25. For whoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall save it. Matthew 21:44. Whosoever shall fall on the stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall will grind. Him to powder. Mark 8.34 whosoever, whosoever will come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow Me. Mark 8.35 For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for My sake and the Gospel, shall, the same shall save it. John 3.15 That whomsoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 4.14 But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water I give them shall become a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. John 11:26. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Acts 2:21. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 10:43. To him uh, give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins. Romans 10:13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 God desires all men to be saved and to come to a full knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord of the promise is not slow as some discern slowness, but is long-suffering towards us, not having purposed any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The who is the whosoever. The what and the where are predestined before the foundation of the earth. And I know that there are verses in the Scripture where God speaks of believers as the elect or the chosen, but that is, in my opinion, again, only because we have come to partake in and of the life of the One who is the elect and the chosen. I don't think that there is any merit apart from Christ that could ever make me the elect or chosen of God. So, what God predestines was is a very specific salvation having to do with a very specific adoption 
which incidentally that that word adoption in the Greek mean is is the word that means son placement son placement that's the literal translation of the word uh, that we have written as adoption son placement it's a perfect word for those who have been placed in the son Nowhere in Scripture does it say that God chooses some to be saved and others to be damned. I, I, I honestly, and you know me, this is for those of you who've been here for years, you know I don't usually get into theological controversies. My point in doing this is really twofold. First and foremost is just to establish Christ as the one who is chosen of God, to exalt Him as the one, as the only one chosen of God, and those who come to live in Him by Him. We become. That seed. That's what the entire chapter of Galatians 3 is about, incidentally. That God has one seed, Galatians 3.16. It says, not many, but one. One seed, Galatians 3.16. That seed is Christ. And then the rest of that chapter goes on to say that if you have come by faith to, be, to live in Christ, then you too are that seed, heirs of promise by faith. That's what, read Galatians 3.16, it says the exact same thing. There's nothing in a son of Adam that merits a special choosing or a special damning. In fact, apart from our choosing to be of that one beloved son, the wrath of God already abides on us. All of us. Paul says that by nature we are children of wrath. John, uh, Jesus says in John 3.18, He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. John the Baptist says in John 3.36, He who believes on the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides uh, abides upon Him. See, again, in my opinion, it is only a complete misunderstanding of the cross, and then which comes into the understanding of Romans 9, that causes people to believe otherwise. Romans 9 is not about God choosing one individual person to be saved and choosing another individual to be damned. Romans 9, in fact, of all of Romans, starting in the second half of Romans 8 through Romans 11, deals with the children of the flesh versus the children of the Spirit. Those who have come to be chosen in the seed, in the one seed, uh, and those who have stubbornly refused and rejected that seed. And he's speaking specifically in these verses. You could apply it to whoever, but he's speaking specifically in these verses with reference to Old Covenant Israel refusing their Messiah and the reality that God has long before chosen the Gentiles to become fellow partakers of the promises spoken to Abraham and to Israel. That's the context of Romans 8-11. through 11. He goes on in chapter 9 to demonstrate that God has always had a chosen son, a chosen seed, in which a people would be blessed. We looked a bit at that last week with reference to the blessings of Abraham. And he writes in Jacob 9, uh, Jacob 9 Romans 9, Jacob 9 is in the Old Testament, uh, right next to Hezekiah. Uh, Anyway, he writes in Romans 9, and this is the verse that trips everybody up. Let's just stop tripping over it this morning. He says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That's where everyone gets messed up. But he is not referring to individual human beings. He is referring to the first and second covenant, the son of promise and the son of the flesh. The son who has the birthright and the son who rejects the birthright. That is what he is doing. That is, 
that's why in the exact same uh, uh, passage, he mentions both Sarah, Abraham's wife, and in that story, it's Isaac and Ishmael. You know, and both of them in the natural were blessed. But one represented something. One represented something else. And then he goes on in, the, in this section to refer to Rebekah. And in that story, it's Jacob and Esau. Long before Abraham was ever born, God had already chosen his son. Jesus says that in John 8. Before Abraham was, was, was born, I am. But then Isaac came to represent the seed of promise. And Ishmael came to represent the seed of the flesh. Same thing with Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the second born, came to represent the seed of promise who inherits both the birthright and the blessing. Esau came to represent those who, though they were first, Israel, rejected the birthright and the blessing and became the enemies of the seed. That is what those two are, are, are speaking of. The election described in chapter 9 in Romans is an election of God's seed, God's son, over and against the natural seed, the natural son. It is Isaac over Ishmael. It is Jacob over Esau. Not the individual human being. Read the story. Both of those individuals were blessed. Esau had tons of cattle, tons of wives, tons of everything. I shouldn't have mentioned the wives part, but he had tons of all kinds of stuff. And so did... uh, Ishmael became a king over 12 lands, 12 kingdoms. I mean, it's not talking about, you know, nat- the, natural, the natural individuals. There's no, you know what, and it's the exact same thing that Paul references with regard, look this up on your own time, Galatians 4, he does the same thing with Sarah and Hagar. And in fact, in, in, in referencing Sarah and Hagar in Galatians chapter 4, he comes right out and says, He is not talking about the individual women, but he is referring to the two covenants with which they represent. And that's in Galatians 4.24. You can look it up if I had a Bible up here. I'd just read it to you, but I didn't bring one. It says, these two are symbolic, representing the two covenants. It doesn't, it's not talking about human beings. It's talking about the first and the second. It's talking about the old and the new. It's talking about that which is of flesh and that which is of promise. That which is of the natural man, that which is of faith, that which is of spirit. The one rejected of God, Adam and all who are in Adam, and all who choose to remain in Adam, the one accepted of God, Christ, and all who choose to live by and dwell in Christ, thereby inheriting the birthright. John chapter 1, those who believe in Him... He gives the right, the birthright, to be called sons of God. Who is it? Those who believe in Him. They become the Jacob. They become those who, in, in essence, take the, the birthright and the blessing from the one who it should have. It should have been Israel should have accepted their Messiah, and very few did. He didn't reject all of Israel. Hebrew, uh, Romans 11 goes on to say that. Paul, the one writing the letter, was, was, was an Israelite. But most of them, he came to his own and his own refused him. Okay, so, you've got two different covenants, two different, in Galatians 4, 24, we'll, we'll tell you plainly, we're not, I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not speaking of specific, uh, oh, here we go. He just handed me a Bible. Here we go. Galatians 4, 24. Well, I'll start in 23. No, I'll start in... 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, the one by the free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these two are two covenants. That's what it says. 
Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia. In other words, Hagar Hagar represents the covenant of the law that came through Mount Sinai. What what does Sarah represent? Sarah represents the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem that we have come to, which is free, which is the mother of us all. And that's what he goes on to say. And then he says in verse 28, he takes Isaac and does the same thing with Isaac. He says, we brethren are as Isaac, the children of promise. Not the... It doesn't mean that we're all actually turning into the man Isaac. He means that what all that Isaac came to represent, which is Christ and those who are blessed in that seed, we have become. What is God talking about in Romans 9? The exact same thing. So God, God says to Moses, and Paul quotes this in the next part of Romans 9, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. And that mercy and that compassion exist only in one place. It exists towards only one people. And that is the people who come to live in the Son of His love. As it says in our verse from this morning, who are accepted in the Beloved. That's why the next verse in Romans 9 is, it says this, So then, it does not depend on Him who wills, nor on Him who runs, but on God who shows mercy. Well, I should say so. It has nothing to do with the will of man or the determination of Adam, but, but everything to do with the one seed he has chosen and the vessels of mercy who choose to live in and by him. His mercy is only extended, in this analogy, to Jacob. Jacob, the son of promise, the seed of promise. And Esau represents all who try to take the blessing, that mercy, without the birthright. That's what, he, that's what Esau did. Remember the story? He comes running in, crying his eyes out. You've you got to have another blessing for me. I, and his dad says, I already gave the blessing to the one who has the birthright. So then, and, that's, and in fact, you can read more about that exact same story in that exact same context in Hebrews chapter 12. And we did that one Friday night not too long ago. So then, I realize uh, that... Uh, this is kind of turning into a commentary on Romans instead of Ephesians, but I kind of wanted to go through Romans because you can read this verse in in Ephesians and say, okay, I can see that there, but then you go to Romans, oh, see, that is saying he's choosing Jacob over Esau and he doesn't like one person and he likes another one. And uh, Anyway, but let's just finish this thing on on Romans here. Uh, Paul goes on to say, you will say to me, you will say to God, that's not fair. And then Paul replies to that argument, and this is my paraphrase, Who are you, O man, to accuse God of injustice for fixing the terms on which and choosing the one in whom He will show mercy? You know, you say to God, why did you make me like this? In other words, Paul's saying, why, are you, why, why have you made me capable of honor and immortality only in Christ and deserving of wrath only in myself? Why did, it's not fair you made me like that. Paul's answer is, yes, by nature, we all are children of wrath. But by Christ, we can become joint heirs, joint sons in the Father's house. And that's exactly, again, that's exactly what our verse talks about here in Ephesians. We become accepted in the Beloved. And then Paul wraps up the whole uh, ninth chapter of Romans showing that he was and then continues to, in the next two chapters, specifically deal with the natural seed of Israel, rejecting the true son, the true seed by faith. Not all of them, but many of them, most of them, the majority of them. But trying to receive the promise, look at what it goes on to say in Romans 9, 
trying to, why are they rejected? Because they're trying to receive the promise based on works of the law rather than by faith. They, in fact, have become the Esau who rejected their birthright. Do you see? They, they were the ones who had all the promises and the prophets and the covenants and the blessings, the types, the shadows, the tabernacle, the sacrifices. When all of that came in the person of Christ, it's like they said, I would rather have this cup of red stew than my birthright. And so they lost the blessing. That's what's happening here. The Gentiles then becoming the Jacob who received the love of God and in, in essence take the birthright and the blessing from, from Esau. And again, obviously, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying all of Israel rejected Christ. Thank the Lord the authors of the New Testament were, were Jews. You know, but, but he came to his own, his own received him not. That was a general statement. So, where were we? Anyway, I mean, maybe, maybe none of this interests, uh, interests you, and, and that's why you're leaving. But, um, <laughs> but there, sorry to single you out there. Uh, but, but there's tons of people in the body of Christ that, that, that teach predestination. I know many people in this room have been taught predestination as, as God choosing, just selecting random individuals. And my, my main point isn't just to argue the theology of that, although I do think the theology of that is dumb. My point is, is really to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as the chosen one, as the elect one, as the predestined person and place in whom we come to be accepted by God. That's my point. My point really isn't to just you know, throw another firebrand on this controversy it's hopefully to end the controversy by showing, by not, not, not by exalting my brain, by exalting the Lord Jesus Christ as the one in whom we, we have become the chosen, as the one in whom we have become the elect. I'm not saying I'm any smarter than anyone else that wrote a commentary to the contrary. I'm saying we need to see Jesus. I'm saying in the light of Jesus, you can understand theology, but apart from the light of His life, Theology is just a, it's a, it's an endless debate of words and theories and ideas, all of which come out of the carnal mind, which is enmity with God. So anyway, you'll notice that in verse 4 uh, of, of, now I'm back in Ephesians here. It, uh, we're going we're gonna to now go from the, from the phrases chosen, predestined, into the other, other thing it mentions twice, and that is love. And it speaks it speaks of God choosing us to stand before Him in love. And I really looked up the Greek in there. That, that, that word translated stand before, before Him quite literally means to be directly in front of or in the sight of Him in love. I like that. I like that. And then in verse 6 it says we are accepted in the Beloved and that would be more literally, and I think this is the way Young's literal translates it, we are accepted in the One being love. I like that even better than in the beloved. Because it's real clear. And I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about um, the love of God. The love of God for you and I. Uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I mean, we could spend so much time talking about the love of God. We, uh, the only reason I'm not going to do it for several weeks is because not too long ago we, we did a series on the love of God uh, several months ago. And I think it was like a four-part series 
so I'll keep this relatively short. But first of all, let me just point out that this plan existed in the heart of God from before the creation of the world. And this plan specifically has to do with love. It has to do with love. Now, that's not just a feeling that He felt for us. It's bigger than that. It's better than that. Remember, you weren't even created yet. It's not just like some, some emotion like, you know, God thinking, man, I sure love Billy. He's such a good old boy or, or something like that. You know, it's not, it's a lot bigger than just a feeling or an emotion. This plan of love has to do with the sharing of himself, the giving of his life. You see, love in its true form has to do with the pouring out of life. It has to do with the outpouring of self, the sharing of self, the giving of life without thought of gain. Love seeks not its own. 1 Corinthians 13 says that. Love, love, love gives life. It gives it without measure and without compensation or any thought of repayment. It, love is the giving away. and sh- I'm trying to break it down in its essence. Love, the love of God is the giving of His life. That's why so often in Scripture it says, God so loved that He gave. In this, the love of God is revealed in that He gave. What did He give? He gave life. He gave everything that His Son is. And it's something, it's something that can't actually work in you unless the love of God is perfected in you. And that's what 1 John talks about. Man, you know, man of, in and of himself can do nice things. Man, man can become, a, you know, a part of all, all, all philanthropic causes. We talked about that a little bit this morning, you know. But I mean, I'm just going to be really honest. Behind each and every one of those, apart from Christ working His nature in you, there is something, some sort of self-gain. There is some sort of self-love at the heart of it. Natural love is just rather than rather than uh, pouring itself out. Natural love seeks to pull things to itself. Our, our love, that's what my love is like. I don't know about your... My love wants to gather the things I like to myself. That's what my love does. It demands and, and, and gathers the things that we perceive we want or need or, or find beautiful. God's love gives away all that He knows that we are in need of and will find beautiful. Contrary to, to almost every wedding sermon I've, I've, I've heard and every bumper sticker I've seen, let me finish before you get upset about me saying this, but God's love is not all-inclusive. God's love is certainly real. It is certainly substance. It is certainly beyond all comprehension. But it is, is experienced. It is realized only in the Son of His love. Only in the Son of His love. Now let me be clear. God's love is offered to all. God's love is offered to everybody. But God's love is only experienced, realized, enjoyed, and received when we come to live in and by the Son of His love. If you refuse the Son, then you've refused the love of the Father. That's true. It's, it's just not... I know, I know we hear it all the time, but God doesn't love... You can't say God loves everybody the same. God offers His love to everybody the same. You can say that. That's true. But God's love is only an offer and an invitation to the world outside of Christ, but becomes a reality, an experience, and a relationship with 
with those who are in Christ. Those who are, in our verse, accepted. How are they accepted? Where are they accepted? They are accepted in the Beloved. God's love is not something that He gives you because of Christ. God's love is the giving to you of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your life. And that's why it says, uh, for God so loved the world. By the way, that for God so, that word so is not a word that means how much. You know, like God, this is how much God loved the world. That word so in the Greek, I mean very plainly, is the manner in which for God thusly loved the world. For God in this manner loved the world. For God so loved the world. This is how He did it. How did He do it? He gave His only begotten Son. But God's love, <coughs> excuse me, God's love is, is, is offered to the whole world in that way by, by giving them a new life, by giving them the opportunity, as Jesus says, to lose your life and gain His. To lay down your life and find another. To dwell in another. You know, he who, lose, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the manner in which God loves the world. 1 John 4.9 says this, In this the love of God was revealed in us, because God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Very specific relationship that God has with those who are in the Son of His love. Here's how God's love is made manifest. He gives us the Son of His love that we might live and become in Him and become partakers of that love. And yes, we partake of that love as individuals. But we do not partake of that love in, independently of Christ. I like the way J.W. Lewin said it when he was last here. He said the love of God is individual, but it is not independent. The love of God is yours in Christ. But the love of God is refused if you refuse Christ. It is individual, but it is not independent of the Son of His love. Colossians 1.13 God delivered us out of the authority of darkness and translated us in to the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's the love of God. We have to realize that the relationship that we are invited into with God is Christ's relationship with with His Father. And we've done this diagram before and I've talked about it before. Let it sink in a little deeper. Our salvation, everything that we've been brought into, that's why over 230 times in the New Testament we are said to be in Christ because everything we have gained in terms of salvation and our relationship to God, we have gained by sharing the life of the One who has always had that relationship with the Father. We come to live in Him. God gives you His Son's relationship with Him. That's called adoption. That's called Son placement. And it's that way with all things spiritual. You know, we realize this about certain things, but we don't realize it about other things. I don't think anyone would say that God gives you your own righteousness. No. God gives you the righteousness of Christ. Right? I don't think, I mean, anyone that's really thought about it, God doesn't give you your own wisdom. Christ is made unto you wisdom from God. Isn't that what the Scripture says? Christ is made unto you wisdom. 
Righteousness, redemption, sanctification. Christ is, that is the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the mind of Christ working in you. Or 2.12 or wherever that is. So, it's the same thing with love. Did God give you your own, your own adoption out here? No. God gave you son placement. God gave you Christ's relationship with His Father. And that's why it says in Romans 8.15, you receive the spirit of adoption. That's Jesus in you. That's you in Him. By which we cry out, Abba, Father. If you don't receive the spirit of adoption, you're not going to cry out. You cannot cry out, Abba, Father. Not in truth, at least. That's what the next verse says. The Spirit Himself witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. It's His Spirit. It's His Son. Christ is the one that was loved of God before the foundation of the world. You, the individual soul, are made to partake of that life and therefore that relationship. The love of God is for you, but the love of God is for you in Christ. You know, you've heard that verse in Romans 8. We talk about it, you know, people quote it all the time. Nothing can separate you, neither this nor that nor this nor that, from the love of God, right? But it doesn't stop there. It says, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus says the same thing in John 17. He says, first he says in John 17, 24, he says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then he says in, in verse 26, two verses later, Father, I've declared to them that is made known or caused them to understand your name and I will declare it. Why? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see? So again, God does love the world, but that is by inviting the entire, every single one of them. We read that verse in Thessalonians where he says he desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He loves the world by inviting every single one of them into the actual relationship and experience of being accepted in the Son of His love. To be loved in the Son of His love. It's an invitation, but it's an invitation we can refuse or we can accept. Jesus says, the, day has, uh, the hour is coming and now has come when the dead who hear my voice, that, that the dead who hear my voice uh, will live. And, and so it's, 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 it's specifically the dead who hear, hear that voice that live by Him. It's something, I'm, I'm trying to make the point that it's something we can accept or something we can, we can refuse. We know from this verse in Ephesians that God has this predestined purpose for you. Predestined plan. A predestined purpose and plan to have a people directly in front of Him in His sight, living in His Son, sharing the life of His Son, sharing the Son's relationship with His Father, accepted in the Beloved. Hebrews 2.10 says this, For it was fitting for Him, because, because of whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect Him as the author of their, of their salvation through suffering, the suffering of death, for both the ones sanctifying and the ones being sanctified are all of one, for which cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Why are we brethren? Because we have all been baptized into one Spirit, gathered through one death, living in one resurrection. We are, you know, why are we then the love of God? Because we are accepted in the Beloved. Because we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and made to dwell in the Son of His love. And now nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us 
from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So, I believe that's what Paul is speaking about here uh, in Ephesians 1. And, uh, and I'm just going to, what I'm going to end by doing here, we're, we're just about out of time, but I'm just going to paraphrase verse, starting back up with last week's verse, verse 3. I'm going to paraphrase in my own language here Ephesians 1, 3, 3 through 6. And uh, this, this is just how I would say it, you know, in, in my language. Every ble- this is verse 3. Every blessing that God promised to Abraham with reference to his seed and all that would come through that seed, he has given you. He has given it to you not in the natural, material, first creation, but he has given it to you in the heavens, in Christ, where you have now been made alive, raised, and seated. Now he goes on to say that in Ephesians 2.6, but I'm just bringing it on in to help understand. Verse 4. In fact... That was the very predestined and preordained purpose of God before the foundation of the world, that He would have a people seated in His Son, purified and blameless, eternally in His presence, before His face, sharing the love that He had with His Son before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, This is what you were predestined for. It is an adoption, son placement, your placement into His Son, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, made to dwell in the Son of His love. That was according to God's good pleasure. That excited God before the foundation of the world. Verse 6, And this is so, so that for all eternity you will become a praise, a tribute, a rejoicing recipient of this grace by which He has made you accepted in the Beloved, accepted in the One having been loved from all eternity. Amen. We'll stop there.